Managing your 401k is hard. Bloom isn't. See what you could be doing to make your 401k better by getting a free analysis at bloom401k.com slash fool. That's bloom with three O's, 401k.com slash fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. We're talking healthcare today, April 18th. My name is Christine Hargis, and Todd Campbell of Fool.com Healthcare Writer is joining me on the phone. Hi, Todd. Hi, Christine. Happy Wednesday. Happy Wednesday. So as our listeners and Todd, you know, I am just barely back from vacation and I'm still fighting some serious jet lag. So I'm only just beginning to catch up on my healthcare news. So this episode is going to get us all up to speed on what's been happening in the healthcare world over the last two weeks. And Todd, I hope you're ready for me to lean on you for some crucial information. <laughs> yep, absolutely. I'm more than happy to to pitch in and and help you and all of our listeners figure out a, at least a couple stories. I mean, there were a number of different things that we could talk about today, but I was able to pick out a few that I think um, everybody will find interesting. All right, let's dive into the first one. All right, for the first one, you're gonna have to put the car in reverse and back it up a little bit um, to the end of March, uh, April 2nd actually was when they reported that they actually got it. But the company I'm going to talk about first is Alchemies. <laughs> and listeners, you might remember that we did a show where we talked about Alchemies on April 4th. And specifically we talked about a refusal to file letter that the company had received from the FDA. Now that's a dreaded thing. We talked about it. That's not good news. Um, it was for a drug, uh, ALKS 5461, for a major depressive disorder. And the FDA shot it back and said, nope, we're not even going to review this drug. And of course, uh, as you can imagine, that caused the share price to fall dramatically. Now, Christine, in that April 4th episode, you said that management sounded a little incredulous. They did. Yeah. When you listen to their reaction to this refuse to file, I mean, this is not something that you see happen a lot, especially not to companies that are talking to the FDA and seem like they have a good handle on things. So I think everybody, management included, was surprised. Yeah. And, you know, it turns out that they had a reason maybe to sound a little incredulous because this week, uh, Alchemies puts out a, a very short <laughs> couple paragraphs a note saying the FDA has changed its mind and they will now review ALKS 5461 after all. That's insane. So is the timeline the same as it was? No, you know, this is fascinating to me. I mean, I've been doing this for over 20 years, Christine. I cannot remember something like this happening, a refusal to file and then so quickly thereafter, um, the FDA being willing to accept it. Uh, they, they, there is a new PDUFA date, so a new decision date uh, is expected in, um, the decision will be expected January 31st, 2019. And of course, what's probably on everybody's mind, especially investors who maybe own the stock higher, sold it on the news. And are now looking at it going, well, wait a minute, did I just sell it for the wrong reason? Because now could 5461 get approved? Is why was that refusal to file even you know, sent back to Alchemies if they're going to change their minds so rapidly or so quickly? And I think that's a valid question. And unfortunately, the FDA uh, is very tight-lipped about these kind of things. You know, Gottlieb was, Scott Gottlieb, the FDA commissioner, he actually was in front of Congress recently and he 
he said that they really don't have a system in place where they can go back and they can take a look at um, the specific reasons behind decisions that they have made in the past. And, you know, so I, I think investors are just going to be scratching their heads for the next however many months until we get to January 2019, wondering whether or not they had a real reason to be concerned about the data that they were seeing in this application and thus won't approve it, or whether or not simply, you know, the Schedule A meeting that Alchemy's had with the FDA, they sat down and they were able to explain away all of the all of the questions that they had. Alchemy's did say, though, Christine, that they didn't have to submit any new data to uh, the FDA, that the FDA was completely fine with just a sit down and talk and some clarification. Which is just crazy to me, because couldn't that have happened before now? Why did they have to send their refuse to file first in order to have this conversation? I'm sure Alchemy's shareholders and management are equally frustrated at that decision. But I think you're right that there is a little bit of an uncertainty here now, and that was reflected in the share price movement. I think the stock gained around 8%, if I'm recalling this correctly, and that was not quite as much as they initially lost when the refuse to file was first received. Yeah, there was, shares are still trading at quite a discount. Uh, it seems that investors, you know, really are aren't factoring in uh, much of a likelihood of fifty four sixty one getting a go ahead in next January. That could create an opportunity, though, right, Christine? Because you know, in the past, when we've seen Alchemy's get beat up, this happened in two thousand sixteen when the first two fifty four sixty one trials came up shy of their endpoints, the shares fell dramatically. And then when the third trial panned out, shares shot up significantly. So I suppose you could say that we're kind of back to where we were before uh, in 2016, where there's not a lot of um, expectation for an approval of 5461. And that if they do manage to successfully get it across the finish line, then maybe the shares will trade up uh, fairly substantially. because. As we said on the fourth on the show on the fourth, a significant percentage of people with major depressive disorder don't respond to existing treatments. And this is a, a, a big indication. It's a multi-billion dollar indication. Yep, absolutely. Um, it, there are a lot of people out here that do not have their depression fully met um, with existing drugs. The company claims that it's the first new approach to depression medication since Prozac, which was approved about 30 years ago. And so if it's approved, it's expected to be the company's first blockbuster drug. But of course, that's a big if. And as you mentioned, Todd, this drug has had a bit of a roller coaster ride. So we'll keep our eyes on it. We'll see what happens. It's time to get your retirement on track and fix your 401k with Bloom. That's Bloom with three O's. Sounds tough? It's not. In fact, it takes only five minutes. Go online to bloom401k.com fool and simply connect your existing 401k in a few easy steps. Then sit back and relax while Bloom performs an unbiased analysis of the funds in your account and chooses the best mix to meet your goals while minimizing hidden investment fees. Bloom researches, invests, manages, monitors, and grows your 401k while you relax. Bloom's pricing is $10 per month regardless of account size. Bloom is one of the fastest-growing robo-advisors fighting for your right to retire. 
Bloom is so simple. In fact, the hardest part about this is remembering that there are three O's in Bloom. Go to bloom401k.com slash fool and enter promo code fool for your first month free and see the difference Bloom could make in your retirement. All right, Todd, so we heard all about Alchemy's latest news. What else has been going on? I think the investors that have followed The Fool for years and years and years might recognize this second company that I thought we should talk about today, Christine, and that's Celdex Therapeutics. Yeah. And so, you remember that, Christine? Yep. Celdex? I'm still a shareholder, so I, I know this company quite well. <laughs> Oh, good. You and I have something in common. Yes, <laughs> we, we both own shares and we're both very, very sad this week. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, like I said, I haven't been following healthcare news extremely closely while I was away, but I do get notifications when the stocks that I hold move sizably, which this one did and not in a good way. Yeah, shares got more than cut in half when their lead drug candidate, Glemba, I'll call it Glemba for short, right, Christine? It's it's. Crazy We're not even going to try with this one, <laughs> right? Right. When Glemba failed to pan out uh, in metastatic triple negative breast cancer, a very uh, a very tough to treat indication cancer indication, they had hoped that by targeting a protein that was overexpressed called GPNMD that Glemba would be able to outperform another drug that's used in this indication called Zolota. And unfortunately for patients and unfortunately for us shareholders, uh, that that didn't happen. This is really disappointing. I mean, Zolota is not a particularly good drug either. It's just such a tough indication that there is a lot of hope here for patients and investors alike that Glumbo would work out. But it didn't meet its primary endpoints. Um, it also didn't even meet many of its secondary endpoints. The only bright spot was that the safety profile was fine, but it doesn't even matter at this point because the drug is now in the dustbin for all indications. Yeah, they just they they looked at all the data. I mean, a lot of times cancer companies, because again, there's a there's a big unmet need for new cancer treatments. They'll look at and do a, a post hoc study and and try and figure out if it worked in some subgroups and maybe they can salvage the drug that way. In this case, they looked at all the data and said, yeah, we progression free survival is 2.9 months versus Zolota's 2.8 months. N- no, no real improvement there. All the secondary endpoints for overall response rate, duration of response, overall survival, no significant advantage there either. So they're basically pulling the plug on Glemba's development, all of the different trials that they were think, uh, conducting and thinking of conducting. And now that's that's a reset button action, right? So you know, investors are stuck looking at it and saying, well, is it game over for Celdex? And not necessarily. Um, ever since Rintega, which was their first huge flop, had its failure, the company has really been leaning on two different drugs for its future. One of them was Glemba, so that is no longer an option. But they are still working on a drug that we'll nickname Varley. And that's being studied in combination with Opdivo. It's in phase two. So that is where all of their efforts will focus right now. And the company will certainly be streamlining all of its expenses towards this one drug. We can expect job cuts coming, expense reductions. The company's cash position is okay. They have about $140 million um, as of the end of last year, which now that they're going to be more focused, should last them a little bit longer. 
Right. So if you look at the beginning of the year, Christine, management was saying that that cash stockpile should get them through 2019. They came out and obviously told everybody about this news on Glumba. One of the things they did say is that because they're not going to have those expenses for for theoretically, you know, trying to get this commercialized, Glumba commercialized, that they're going to be able to extend out the runway of that money and that now they'll be able to maybe last beyond 2019 with it. We don't know how much further. It's going to depend, again, like you said, on the amount of the job cuts they do and, and what they decide to do with the rest of the drugs that are in their pipeline. It's probably also going to depend a lot, Christine, on Varley. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, Varley is being developed uh, in phase two trials with Bristol Myers Opdivo, so as part of a combination therapy. And we should start to get data reading out on that this year. I think, you know, at first we're going to get ovarian and colorectal and kidney cancer cohorts to read out data. And I think that's going to happen probably sometime, you know, by the fall. So if the Varley data is good, maybe, just maybe, that reignites the share price a little bit. I think one of the things investors should also recognize is, is or they might be scratching their heads and wondering, so I think maybe we should talk about it, right, Christine, is there's $140 million in cash on the books and no debt, but the market cap's only $111 million. Yeah, that's a really good point. So walk me through how that makes any sense. Well, I, th I think that people might be looking at it and saying, well, wait a minute, you're, you're basically not valuing the pipeline at all. Pipe you're giving the pipeline a negative valuation because, again, you have more cash on the books than you have uh, um, as far as market caps. So I think that one of the things that investors should remember is that, that because there's no commercial revenue coming in, that that cash, you, you're going to have to discount that cash. It's really not $140 million, right? It's, it's probably going to end up continually drip, drip, dripping down uh, to a lower level over the course of the next couple of years until some point in 2019 or whenever they tell us they run out of money. So you can't really value it that way. So there is some value being attached to the pipeline because of the fact that the cash is, is falling. The real question will be Varley, though. I mean, because Varley is now their most advanced drug. Everything else that they have, they have uh, you know four or five other programs. Um, but those are all just either in phase one or heading towards phase one. So, you know, you, you, if Varley doesn't pan out, then Celdex basically becomes a company with the most earliest of stage drugs. And um, and obviously that's not the position you were hoping to be in when you bought the stock and I bought the stock a couple of years ago. Yes, but I also want to point out that I think you and I both recognized how risky this stock was. I know for me personally, I had it in a really tiny portfolio that I keep in Robinhood, which is a zero commission trading app. And I use that account specifically to build really small positions where I don't want commission taking anything away from it because it would be too high of a percent for me. So while I was disappointed to see this, it wasn't a huge loss for me. And hopefully any of our listeners out there that built a position, having heard us talk about this company, recognized how risky it was and you didn't put any money into it that you couldn't afford to lose. Right. I think that's that's an excellent point. It's an excellent report. We talk about it on the show over and over again, diversify, 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 because fact is that clinical trials fail. It's very common when you're investing in biotech. I mean, we've seen it before and we'll see it again. One of the things that David Gardner um, talks about is not adding to your losers, you know, but focusing instead on your winners. 
So I think that, you know, when you go out and you buy a company like this, and it sounds like you did this, when you go out and you buy a company like this and it's not working, you know, don't chase it lower. Don't try to catch that falling knife. Let it play out. Let's see what happens with barley. Uh, and, and in the meantime, focus on the winners in your portfolio. Words of wisdom from one of the founders of The Motley Fool. All right, Todd, we have time for one more news item. What do you want to talk about? I thought it'd be important for investors to understand a little bit about what happened with Johnson & Johnson in the first quarter. And they just reported their first quarter earnings results. So I feel like that's probably a great topic for you and I to sort of just give people an overview of, of what's going on with J&J, because it is a core holding probably in most of our listeners' portfolios. This could not be a harder pivot from Celdex, <laughs> tiny little biotech that essentially only has one pipeline candidate. Johnson & Johnson is enormous. It is a pillar of our ongoing coverage of the healthcare sector, so I'm glad that you want to talk about it. You're right that so many investors own it, especially dividend investors. and uh, They're part of so many index funds as well that chances are nearly all of our listeners have some sort of stake in J&J. So, right, even if you don't know you own it, you own it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, what are the headline figures? I think, um, well, to, to give a little bit of context, let's take a look at Q1's numbers and sort of compare them a little bit to what happened in Q4. So, you get a little bit of sequential feel, right? So, in the first quarter, revenue clocked in at $20 billion. Now, that was up 12.6% if, you know, on an unadjusted basis. In Q4, revenue was $20.2 billion. So you saw a nice little pop year over year, but pretty flat, we'll call it flat quarter over quarter. As far as earnings per share, those came in at $2.06. This is adjusted numbers. Again, up 12.6%. And that was up nicely. That was up nicely from $1.74 in the fourth quarter. There is, though, a caveat that investors, and I think we highlighted this the last time J&J reported their earnings as well. There's a caveat to taking a look at the top line revenue numbers because Christine, as you'll remember, you know Johnson and Johnson made that big splash when they bought Actillion. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you've got the uh, positive impact of the sales that have come from Actillion yeah, in that twelve point six percent growth. That was a game changer. That was a thirty billion dollar acquisition. So of course we're now seeing the effects of it. Right. So if you back out that deal to try and get a feel for like operationally how J&J is doing, um, you get a much more, we'll call it realistic growth figure for an $80 billion company, right? You usually don't see $80 billion companies growing double digits, right? So the overall sales, if you back out Actillion and if you back, uh, just for uh, uh, currency conversion and all that jazz, uh, was up 4.3%. So we'll, let's call that solid, Christine, right? 4.3% for a company this size? I'll take it. Okay, great. Yeah, why not, right? So you and I have talked about in this in the sh on the show before that J and J uh, breaks out their business into three different segments. Yep. Yeah, they have the medical devices segment, they have the consumer product segment, and then they have the pharma segment. So I'm sure you'll tell me a little bit about the first two, but I'd really love to focus on the pharmaceutical segment because, as usual, that's the one that really matters and really drives the growth. Yeah, that's where the rubber hits the road for this company, right? And it does for most biopharma companies. I mean, the consumer business is just a steady eddy business. Matter of fact, in the first quarter, the sales were up 1.3% year over year. Big deal, right? Uh, medical device business, um, that, that, you know, it 
that was only up 3.2 percent, um, uh, you know, year over year. But the, it's really that pharmaceuticals business that was was the big driver of J and J's results in the quarter. You know, the sales there for the pharma segment grew 15.1 percent. And even if you act X out Actillion, growth was still up 7.5 percent. And for a company of this size, that's that's pretty solid growth. Yeah, that also speaks good things about the Actelion acquisition that it accounted for about half of their pharmaceutical growth. Very good point. Very good point. I mean, it was a, it was a big deal. It was a big deal, but it wasn't the only thing that was was we'll call it a pr- in the pro column for the pharma segment, right? I, th- I think that investors should be aware that Stellara, which you know won approval uh, for Crohn's disease back in 2016, continues to get more and more market share. And as a result, its sales jumped 24% year over year to over a billion dollars. Uh, so that's now a $4 billion a year drug. Darzelex, which um, recently won uh, approval for use in the second line of multiple myeloma treatment, sales there soared. I mean, they jumped 64% to $432 million. So that's now you know a $1.6 billion a year drug and still climbing and with the potential to go even higher. Because you know they're 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 hoping to win approval for first line use of Darzelex, and that's of course a very big indication. So so there's a lot of opportunity there. They also saw really good growth for Zytiger, their prostate cancer drug that grew 54% because of again a label expansion, and Imbravica, which they share with AbbVie. That sales of that drug, uh, which is uh, used in CLL, uh, that drug jumped. Um, Sales jumped 35% to nearly 600 million. So they had they had a number of different bright spots in the pharmaceutical product lineup. Yeah, especially in oncology, which was up 37%. But turning to the cons column, we've been watching Remicade for a while, and some price erosion there has caused an 18% drop. What is going on with Remicade? And listeners might remember that, it, Christine, you and I have talked about this in the show in the past. Remicade, one of the largest um, top-selling drugs for use in autoimmune disorders, um, you know, that lost its patent protection. Pfizer and a couple other companies have come out and are challenging it with uh, their biosimilars. Um, Johnson & Johnson, somewhat, there's a little controversy there in how they're going about doing this, but Johnson & Johnson has been very aggressive about maintaining its market share in terms of volume. And they've done that by being aggressively negotiating deals with insurers that give them preferential treatment. So they're basically, they're cutting costs, right? They're cutting the cost of, of Remicade to maintain their volume. And that's really the reason behind uh, the 18% year-over-year drop in Remicade sales to $1.4 billion. And I think from a business perspective, business standpoint, that's probably the right move. That's a smart move because they can they can still make plenty of money on Remicade uh, uh, even by cutting its prices. Yeah, These are it's, expensive drugs. it's a necessary evil. Yeah, yeah. I, and I think in top of, you know, Remicade, obviously, they also have um, Concerta um, that, that's facing off against some generic competition. So sales of that fell 20% to $173 million. Invocana, which is a, a type 2 diabetes drug, an SGLT2 drug, uh, sales of that fell about 14% to $248 million just because other uh, drugs with the same mechanism of action have come to market in the past year. So, you know, the money's getting spread out across more players. Um, nothing really here. Uh, very concerning to me. You know, I mean, we'll, we should probably, 
you know, factor in that Remicade sales will continue to trickle lower over time. But this certainly isn't the 50% drop off that you might expect when generics come to market. It seems to more, be more like a, a controlled decline. And, you know, if you get a controlled decline, then new drugs can come to market and, you know, offset some of that headwind. And they do have some new drugs. They have a new prostate cancer drug. They also have a new psoriasis drug that showed superiority to Humira, which is one of the best-selling drugs ever, in a head-to-head analysis. So there are definitely good things coming up in the future for Johnson & Johnson. Right. So, you know, you mentioned those two drugs. You get Tremphia, uh, which is, again, that, that, that drug that outpaced Humira. And Humira is obviously the best-selling drug in the world with over $18 billion in sales. So anytime you can best that drug, right, it's a good thing for, you know, commercial revenue. Uh, and then you also have your new prostate cancer drug. And remember, prostate cancer is just a massive indication. I mean, they get like $3.6 billion a year just from their prostate cancer drug site, TIGA. I don't know if this will drop. Well, be a blockbuster too, but I think we should be watching that over the course of the next couple of quarters because it could add meaningful revenue. As far as 2018, they did issue guidance. Christine, you want me to, to outline what that guidance is? Absolutely. Tie a bow on it. All right. So in 2018, the company is now expecting between $79.5 billion in revenue to $80.3 billion in revenue. And if they can deliver on that number, that's going to be up 4 to 5% on an operational basis. That's slightly better than the revenue expectation they had exiting uh, Q4 when they were expecting 79.1 to 79.9 billion. So on the top end, they increased their outlook by about 400 million. Uh, they left their EPS guidance though, Christine, they left that unchanged at um, somewhere between $7.80 you know, $7. and $8 a share. Okay, sounds good. Todd, thanks so much for catching me up. Oh, my pleasure, Christine. I'm glad you had a nice trip. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Hargis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!